Check, check filet, check. You guys doing good? Hey, it's good to see you guys. If you've got a, if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Romans 8. Um, if you don't, it'll all be on the screen for you. A um, couple things. First, this is a special morning um, because we, I sound like a robot. Am I doing, is it my voice? It's that. All right, that's fine. That's fine. Um, it's, this is a special morning for us because after the sermon, Lord willing, we will be installing Luke Snowden and Carlos Sims as pastors. Yes, yes. Well, e- chill, easy. There's still time, okay? You guys can still drop the ball between now and then. <laughs> you, you know it's a good fit. I was telling our, our volunteers this morning, you know it's a good fit when you announce that these guys are coming on as elders and pastors and everybody says, oh, I thought they already were. That's how you know you got the right men. Um, second quick thing, and then we're going to get at it. We clearly cannot fit in this room anymore as one service. We can't even fit in this room as two services now. Um, so last week I talked about the possibility of us finding a different facility in the city of Des Moines so we can get back to one service. We even talked about the possibility of the Des Moines Heritage Center, which is in the East Village on East 5th, um, as a possibility that we're pursuing right now. If we got that facility, it would be a huge win. First, we could get back to one service. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. That's right. Second, it has a better kid space. Also awesome. Third, we might even save a couple dollars. So it would be a better fit for us. It would be a better place for us. And we might even save a couple bucks. And last week, I asked all of you to pray to the Lord as we had that special meeting with him last week. We asked you to ask the Lord, Lord, would you give us this building? And it worked. Woo! (laughs) I'm so excited. We've got, so we've got the contract. We haven't signed it yet. So there's still time for us to screw that up. Um, we don't think that's going to happen. Uh, there's a couple minor tweaks that need to happen, but we've got the contract. We think that it's going to work moving forward. We'll keep you in the loop and, uh, we will carve out a transition strategy that's super clear so that this is the best step we could even imagine taking forward. It's going to be awesome. So buckle up for that ride and keep praying. Um, this is your first morning here. I want to say, Hi, we're psyched you're here. You're our heroes. Thanks for visiting a church that meets in a jazz club. We are in the middle of our year-long sermon series on the book of Roman that I have turned into a year-and-a-half-long sermon series. Um, Who knows, maybe we'll reach two by the end of it. And we are smack dab in the middle of Romans chapter 8. It's going to be a wild morning this morning, this morning. I'm going to share a story about stepping on Legos at my house. I want to talk about a story of Abihu in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus getting torched by God in the temple and how that actually still applies to you. I want to talk about the golden lampstand that's in the middle of the tabernacle. And I even want to talk about the way that Roman Catholics handle communion. And by the end of it, my hope is that we all walk away from this sermon knowing that Romans 8 has just reinvented what it means to be human. It's going to be a wild morning. If you missed last week, if you missed last week, we're, we're taking the entire month of October and we're devoting all five of those Sundays to 
Romans chapter 8. And the single most effective key to understanding all the riches of Romans 8 is the book of Exodus all the way back in the Old Testament. Romans 8 is essentially the New Testament Exodus. It's essentially the new Exodus. I made the argument last week that Paul is using the book of Exodus almost like a blueprint to lay out for the new covenant believers what the life of a Christian looks like. Paul sees Jesus as the new Moses. Like Moses, Jesus is the new leader of the people of God. The same way that Moses led Israel out of slavery and to salvation through the Red Sea and drowned Pharaoh's army is the same way that Jesus leads us to salvation through the Red Sea of salvation where our enemies of sin and Satan are drowned. New Moses, new leader. And the same way that Moses ascended to Mount Sinai and sent down the law to bind together the people of God is the same way that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, ascends to Mount Zion and then sends down the Holy Spirit to bind together the people of God. New Exodus, that's Romans 8. You guys feeling me? You with me? Now, as I've been studying this week, I've been thinking about whether or not I put too much emphasis on Romans 8 being the new Exodus last week. Maybe I made some connections that required a little too much stretching. Because in Exodus, Moses leads God's people through the Red Sea. He sends the law down to them. And then one of the central points in the book of Exodus is the building of the temple to be the dwelling place of God with man. It's like half the book. So... If Romans 8 was really the new exodus, then after Paul explains how Jesus led his people through the Red Sea of Salvation and then sent the Holy Spirit down to bind them together, you would expect Paul to transition into giving instructions on how to build a new temple. And Romans doesn't talk about a new temple. Romans doesn't give instructions on how to build the new temple. Or does it? Let's stand for the reading of God's word. We looked at verses 1 through 4 last week, but I want to read those just so you see context. Paul says in Romans 8, the greatest chapter ever written, There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, there is no condemnation this morning hanging over your head. And when you wake up tomorrow and the alarm clock goes off, there will be no condemnation hanging over your head. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You're done. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And this morning, we pick up the ball at verse five. What's it mean to walk according to the spirit? 
For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Why not? It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You don't owe your flesh anything. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, Exodus language, to fall back into fear under Pharaoh, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, this text truly reinvents what it means to be human. Some of us have arrived this morning with a terrible anthropology and we see ourselves the wrong way. We think that we are the things that we've done. We think that we're the goals that we have set for ourselves. We think that we are that stupid thing we said earlier that week or that mistake that we made. And Romans 8 corrects us. We are not what we've done. We are not what people think about us. We are not what people say about us. We are the temple of the living God who indwells in us through the Spirit. If, if even one person this morning walked away really believing that, then our city would look different. So it's in the precious name of Jesus that all God's people prayed. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Intro note, the Holy Spirit is not a new character in the Bible, in the New Testament. He's, this is not like a, a twist in the plot. This isn't a Quentin Tarantino movie where in the middle there's a twist and you meet all these new characters. The Holy Spirit is all over the Bible from beginning to end. He's all over the Old Testament from beginning to end. And God's people in the Old Testament, they had a category in place for understanding the Holy Spirit. For the Old Testament believer... The Holy Spirit of God dwelled in the temple. 
the tabernacle. I'll use those two places interchangeably this morning. The temple was the place where God dwells with man. The temple was the place where heaven invades earth. Uh, The temple is the place where God's presence was rooted on the ground. It was the temple. And so Old Testament believers had a category in place for understanding the presence of the spirit. It was firmly rooted in the temple. So watch this. Verses 9 through 11. Watch this. We'll, we'll go back to the beginning of the text and we'll go through it verse by verse. But look at verses 9 through 11. This is his central argument. Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in... Watch this now. Watch this really carefully. For just a second, pretend that you don't have access to the entire New Testament. Pretend for just one second that you're an Old Testament believer. As Paul finishes the sentence, you think, you think you're smart enough to know exactly where Paul is going. You've studied Exodus. You've studied your Old Testament. You know exactly what Paul is going to say. Paul is going to end up saying, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in the temple. Yeah, okay, Paul. The spirit of God dwells in the temple. Yeah, we know that. Tell, thanks, Captain Obvious. Tell us something that we don't know. Now... Feel your heart leap through your chest when you look at the way that Paul actually finishes the sentence. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Get out! Me? I'm the place where God dwells on earth now? So, like, I'm like, I'm like a living, breathing temple with skin on? Like, like a living, breathing temple with arms and legs. I'm the place where God dwells with his people on earth. Watch Paul continue to make this point in the text. He says, yeah, yeah. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, that's the second time he says it. And that's a second way of saying the same thing. That the person of Jesus now dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, although the body is dead because of sin. This is his way of saying, I know this is hard to believe. Like when you look at your body, it's dying and failing you and pinched nerves and broken bones. He says, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, and here's the third time in three verses he says the same thing. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There's a lot in there. I just want to show you the main point. You don't have to be a genius to get the main point of what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that there is, in fact, a new temple. He doesn't use the word temple because he's a good writer. He's using blueprints, right? He's, he's using patterns, and he's showing through good writing how this is the new exodus. Jesus, like Moses, leads his people through the Red Sea of Salvation. Jesus, like Moses, ascends the mountain of God and sends his people the new law, which is the spirit of life. And then Jesus, to dwell with his people, builds for himself a new temple. And the new temple is you. And if that's the point that Paul is really making, then you would expect to see in Romans, 
what you see in Exodus, all these detailed instructions for how to build the temple. Have you ever read that? Like in the book of Exodus, read all the instructions for the tabernacle. Remember when we went through uh, Exodus like a year, year and a half ago? There's all these crazy instructions about the peculiarities of what goes in the tabernacle and what stays out. How, what type of acacia wood you should use to build the altar that goes into the temple and how big the altar should be, how many cubits it should be, what type of gold or silver to make things with, what type of gold to make the Ark of the Covenant with. There's all these crazy, precise instructions. And if Paul was making the claim that the body of the human believer is now the temple of God, then you would expect him to give us extensive details and instructions for how to treat our bodies like a temple. And that's exactly what Paul does for these 12 verses. He tells us what it means to treat our bodies, our lives, ourselves, as though the Spirit of God dwells in us because the Spirit of God does dwell in us. Paul is saying that to be led by the Spirit is to live and think and act as if you are a living, breathing temple with arms and legs. And to be really clear, what Paul does in our text this morning is give us four ways that walking according to the Spirit makes us the temple of the living God. Four ways. We'll do it point by point. First, hit him up, Jay. The Holy Spirit makes you a temple of the Spirit. This is verses 5 through 8. Let me just read this over you. In verses 5 through 8, Paul says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't have God's Spirit. It doesn't submit to God's law because indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh rather than the Spirit cannot please God. What Paul's doing is he's giving us two realms that we can choose to set our minds on. We can set our minds on the flesh or we can set our minds on the spirit. This is an important caveat. When Paul uses the phrase flesh, he's not talking, he's not using a phrase that's synonymous with skin or creation or the physical world, okay? That's a huge error. A lot of us think that when Paul uses the phrase flesh, he's just talking about like our bodies. And we know that that's not the case because in the book of Genesis, when God creates the physical world and he creates your body and he creates creation, he looks at it all and he says that it's good, So Paul is not saying God was wrong in Genesis and now those things are bad. Creation, the human body, the physical world is good and God loves it. The flesh, for Paul, is shorthand for our sin nature. Paul is saying that it's possible to set your mind on the sin nature rather than the spirit. And he's saying, don't do it. The Holy Spirit sets our mind on the Spirit. Um, I think there are people in this room who believe that they can do whatever they want with their minds as long as they're well-behaved. Is that you? My mind, my choice. Nobody's going to see what goes on in there. I can do whatever I want as long as I'm well-behaved in the real world. My mind, my choice. Um, the other day I was getting ready to take the kids to McDonald's because it was daddy day 
and I was going to get him a Happy Meal, and I was really excited about it. And I love hanging out with my kids. I really do. But I was in a really, really, really crappy mood the other day, hanging out with the kids. And the reason why I was in the crappy mood is because I, I had set my mind on the flesh. There was this there was this argument that I had gotten into a couple of weeks ago. It wasn't even a big argument, but I just kept on like repeating the argument in my head, like over and over and over again. I just kept on repeating the argument in my head, thinking about how I would have, you know, said it differently if I had another chance and how could he misunderstand me like that? And that's what Paul would say is to set the mind on the flesh. And uh, so I was, in a, I was in a cruddy mood and on my way out the door, I stepped on a Lego that Della was playing with. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a dad, my kids are two and four, okay? So I've stepped on some Legos in my day. No problemo. I mean, Russell's four now, so I basically walk on Legos at home. I basically sleep on a bed of Legos. Like, this is not a problem. I've stepped on a million Legos before and nothing has been a problem. But this time, I had that argument in my head. My mind was just set on the flesh. And I was filled with anger and there was this bitterness inside of me. It kind of felt like I was trying to hold a, a beach ball underwater. Like, you ever feel that inside of yourself? Like, you're, you're trying to be in a good mood, but, like, internally, there's all this bitterness. And it feels like you're holding a beach ball underwater. It feels, like, impossible. The thing's about ready to pop out. And all it took was one Lego. And the beach ball popped out. One Lego. And all of a sudden, Della... You didn't, put away, you didn't put away your Legos like daddy said. You disobeyed daddy and you're not getting a happy meal today. I said that. I was like, who is that? Like whose voice was that? Stepped in a million Legos with no problem whatsoever. But when you set your mind on the flesh, all it takes to make your world fall apart is one Lego. To set the mind on flesh is death. When you set the mind on flesh, what you choose to set your mind on is not a private decision. It is a public decision that has public consequences. You set your mind on flesh and then you brood and you brood and you brood over these hypothetical arguments. And then you brood and you brood and you brood. And you keep holding on to that argument. You keep nursing and nursing and nursing the things of the flesh and then boom, it all comes out. My mind, my choice. No, it's not. What you set your mind on, the world has to deal with the consequences of that choice. It's not a private decision. Without the Holy Spirit, all it takes is one Lego. What you set your mind on, you make your spouse pay that price. What you set your mind on, you make your two-year-old daughter pay that price when you step on the Lego, right? When your mind is set on the flesh, all it takes is one Lego to make your entire world fall apart. But when you set your mind on the spirit, you can get crucified on a cross that's made of Legos and still get your daughter the Happy Meal. That's what Jesus does. Crucified in your place for your sins, stepped on your Legos, and he still buys you the happy meal. 
looks at you and forgives you and welcomes you into paradise. So when you set the mind on flesh, it's death. But when you set the mind on the things of the spirit, like love, joy, unity, and peace, you, you experience life. So church, set your mind on the spirit. It's, it's popular and it's bad theology to just make the assumption that the Holy Spirit makes you mindless. You know, like the spirit doesn't really care about thinking and the life of the mind and logic and the brain. The spirit is all about feel-good, spontaneous experiences. Read your Bible. For Paul, the Holy Spirit invigorates the life of the mind, sets the mind on the right things, brings clarity to your mind, establishes healthy neural pathways and healthy mental disciplines. The Holy Spirit doesn't make you mindless. He makes you mindful. Amen? Does anybody need the Holy Spirit in here? I just read this and I'm like, oh man, I'm going to walk on a million Legos in my life. I need the Spirit. Second, I'm way behind. The Holy Spirit doesn't just make you a temple for the Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes you a temple of new creation. This is, this is verse 11. Paul says, quote, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So what Paul's teaching us is that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of your resurrected body in the new creation. If the Spirit, Paul's logic goes, if the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you, then the Spirit isn't going to let your body rot in the grave for eternity. But in due time when Jesus returns, this same Spirit will resurrect your body from the dead. And this makes perfect sense for Paul, and it should make perfect sense for us. The the Holy Spirit should give us confidence in the resurrection for a simple reason. And that reason is because you're a temple. And the temple in the Old Testament was intricately designed to be a sneak peek of the new creation. I could prove this in a million different ways. I'll do one way. But inside the temple is the mercy seat that represents the throne of God. And on both sides of that mercy seat are two cherubim or angels. And it's designed that way. And God was really particular about this design because it's designed to imitate the throne room of heaven. When you catch visions of God in heaven, he too is on a throne and he too is surrounded by cherubim and angels. And so the temple was not designed to just be a place where religious activity happened. It was a symbol for the place where heaven and earth overlapped. It was God's throne on earth. It was the place where heaven invaded earth. It was supposed to be like the the movie trailer version of the new creation, right? It's a snapshot of what the new creation is going to be. And since the Holy Spirit has made you into a temple, what's that make you? It means that you're now the place where heaven invades earth. It means that you're now the place where heaven and earth overlap. This is why Paul says in another letter that you are a little piece of new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so when you die, you can be certain that you'll be resurrected into glory because you're part of the new creation. And when God builds the new creation, he's not going to lose any pieces of his new creation to build it. So you're a piece of that new creation. He'll make sure that you are resurrected into glory if you have the Holy Spirit. So you are this living, breathing, walking piece of new creation that has bursted forth into the old creation. Is this beautiful? You guys need the spirit? This is what he does. Third, The Spirit makes you a temple of purity. This is verses 12 through 13. Paul says, quote, 
So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How's that for violent language? Put, not, not deal with your sin and like try to mitigate it. And it says put to death the deeds of the body. My argument, again, is that this is best understood not within a moralistic framework of do good things and don't do bad things. That's not what Paul is saying. This is best understood within the framework of the temple because the temple of the living God is a place for total and complete purity. One of the first stories about the temple or the tabernacle is in the, is in the book of Leviticus, right? The temple's been built. The spirit of God dwells in it. And it's the story of Nadab and Abihu in the book of Leviticus. It's short and sweet, but scary. So let me just read this for you. This is Leviticus chapter 10, verses one through two. Leviticus says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which God had not commanded them. And fire, the Spirit of God, came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. It's a scary story, but the gist of the story is simple. Nadab and Abihu weren't supposed to be in there. They were not Aaron. They were not Moses. They were sons of Aaron and they were sons of Moses and they were not supposed to be in the temple. And on top of that, they make an unauthorized offering to God with a strange fire. Only the high priest was supposed to be in the most holy place in the temple once a year and with rigorous preparation and sacrificial offerings. And so when Nadab and Abihu just waltz on in, and just wander in there without a ceremonial washing and without an atoning sacrifice, they get toasted. And the point is really simple. The temple's a place of perfect purity. And any impurity that just haphazardly dinks around in the temple will be put to death. And you're the spirit now. And if you live according to the spirit, You'll do to your sin what the Spirit of God did to Nadab and Abihu. You'll put it to death. And so the story of Nadab and Abihu isn't ultimately about Nadab and Abihu. It's about the Holy Spirit helping you put your sin to death to keep his temple pure because you're that valuable to him. Fourth, the Spirit makes you into a temple of prayer. This is verses 15 through 17. Let me read it for you. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so Paul describes the Spirit's work in us by by describing how the Spirit speaks two ways within us. The Spirit speaks through you to the Father because he adopts you and makes you a son or daughter of God. And so he speaks through you to the Father by saying, Abba, Father. And the Spirit also speaks to your spirit. Do you see that in the text? The Spirit also bears witness to your spirit. He also speaks to your spirit by whispering, you're a child of God. 
And I know sometimes it doesn't feel that way. And I know sometimes you feel like a failure, but you're a child of God and you're an heir of God and you're beloved by God. And once again, you've probably heard this truth that the Spirit intercedes for you, right? Like the Spirit helps you pray. The Spirit is inside of you and he helps you pray. You've probably heard that a hundred times as a Christian, but you can deepen this knowledge when you fit it within the framework of viewing yourself as a temple. Think about one item in the temple. The golden lampstand. There's all these items that God is super particular about. Like, it's almost like, has God an interior designer? Like, why is he so, like, why is he so heaven-bent on what goes in and what stays out? And it's really simple because the golden lampstand represented something. The golden lampstand, like all the other items in the temple, the golden lampstand was supposed to be lit at all times. And it's because it signified the presence of the Holy Spirit in the temple, shining forth day in and day out without ceasing. And in that same way, that is supposed to provide you with a visual of what the Holy Spirit is now doing within you. He too will never go out. He too is shining forth within you day after day, night after night, praying within you day by day, crying out to God through you, giving you groans for words that are too deep. He's still at work when you go to sleep at night. When you're dreaming about God knows what, the Holy Spirit is hard at work within you, crying out to the Father on behalf of you. And that's why God is so particular in the Old Testament about what goes in the temple and what stays out. Because God cares about what you furnish your temple with. Right? You are not to furnish your temple with lust and self-hatred and pessimism and imaginary arguments. And condemnation, you're supposed to furnish your spiritual life as though you are a temple because you are a temple. So you're supposed to furnish it with the golden lampstand, these indwelling prayers of the Holy Spirit. You're supposed to furnish it with the bread of the presence, which represents the presence of Christ Jesus, the bread of life in you. Supposed to furnish your life with the ever burning incense of the temple, the prayers of the Christian that never cease and always ascend to God. You're a temple for the Spirit of God and you're precious to Him. And so I've really just been making one argument, even though I've had four points. It's really simple, guys, but in summary, the Spirit makes you into a temple for the Spirit, the Spirit makes you into a temple of new creation. The Spirit makes you into a temple for purity, and the Spirit makes you into a temple of prayer. And it's like, yeah, Cole, I get it. Like, I'm a temple where the Spirit of God dwells. But do you believe that? Like, I love the Myers-Briggs test. I'm an ENT something. I can't even remember. I think those things are great for self-awareness. I'm a fan of the Enneagram for self-awareness. But if you really want to develop accurate self-awareness of yourself... Study the temple. It's what you are. It's, it's, it's who you are. Right? You read the Old Testament and you're like, man, God's people were obsessed with the temple. They fantasize about the temple. It was a big deal to them. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 84. David says, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Right? David is saying, when I think about the temple, I start drooling, bro. Like when I think about the temple, I almost pass out. He says, my soul longs and faints for the courts of the Lord because that's where the spirit of God dwells, man. 
It makes me pass out when I think about it. Think about that. If David encountered you, he would pass out. He would black out. He'd be like, oh my gosh, that's where God's presence is. That's, that's the temple. That's where God dwells, man. He would literally faint. If you take Romans 8 seriously, you literally need to take everything that you thought you knew about yourself, write it on a sheet of paper, crumple it up, and then throw it out of the freaking window. Because Romans 8 truly, literally reinvents what it means to be a human. You are wrong about who you thought you were. You are not the sum total of your molecules. You are not your failures. You are not what people say about you. You are not what you think about yourself. You are not your mistakes, and you are definitely not your sins. And so, sister, brother, when you look into the mirror, you should not see staring back at you a loser. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you should not see staring back at yourself a failure. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you should see staring back at yourself a living, breathing temple of the holy God. When you look in the mirror, you should be like, oh my gosh, right? It's a temple looking back at me. And you know that this is the most virtuous way to view yourself. And the reason why you know this is the most virtuous way to view yourself is not primarily because the scriptures teach it. It's because it's what you want for the people you love, isn't it? Like you don't want your daughter to grow up and look at the mirror and only see acne staring back at her. You don't want your son to grow up and look at the mirror and only see his salary looking back at him. You want them to look in the mirror and see somebody who is precious and holy to God because they are. This is the way to view yourself. The self-hatred needs to stop. The condemnation needs to stop. The self-pity needs to stop. And when you begin to see yourself as a temple, then Romans 8 is finally beginning to sink in. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with a loved one and you hear them beat themselves up. And you just think to yourself, man, I just wish I could give you my eyes so that you could see yourself the way that I see you. That's Romans 8. That's the way God feels about you. In Romans 8, God is trying to give you his eyes so that you can finally see yourself the way that he sees you, which is as a temple of the living God. And when you begin to see yourself that way, then I think you're finally prepared for the next task, which I think is even more difficult, which is the task of seeing others as a temple for the living God. That's harder, right? One more thing and then we'll be done. I just want to show you this one more thing. In verse 12, there's a shift in Paul's language. Paul shifts to using deeply familiar language to describe how the Spirit adopts us. He marks the beginning of this new thought by using the phrase, so then, brothers. And then in verse 14, he calls us sons of God. And then in verse 16, he calls us children of God. And what Paul is doing is massively important right here. He has just shocked the Romans into seeing themselves as the temple of the living God. And now he's shocking them with an even greater voltage. He's trying to help two different people groups, Jew and Gentile, to see the other as sacred and holy in the temple of God. The Jewish believer needs to stop looking at the Gentile believer as law-breaking enemies of God, and they need to see them as temples, right? And the Gentiles need to stop looking at the Jews 
as losers in the Roman world who don't have Roman citizenship and don't have value, and they need to start seeing them as temples of the living God. Boy, that doesn't have any application for us. You need to stop seeing conservatives as enemies, and you need to start seeing them as temples. You need to stop seeing liberals as enemies, and you need to start seeing them as temples. You need to stop seeing Calvinists as enemies and Arminians as enemies and pro-mask people as enemies and anti-mask people as enemies and people who differ from you as enemies and you need to begin the hard work of viewing them as what they are, temples of the living God. Then... We won't be so mean to each other, you know? I mean, have you ever seen a Catholic priest serve communion? I don't know if you have or you haven't. Catholic priests are so gentle and so thoughtful and so caring and so careful with communion. And it's because of their theology. They believe that the presence of God literally dwells in the bread and literally dwells within the wine. So you got to be careful with that stuff, man. Like, don't let that bread drop, bro. Like, the presence of God is in there. Right, don't spill that wine. Don't waste any of that wine. The presence, of, the presence of God is literally in there. So they're so careful with that. And that's the way that we need to handle each other. It's the Spirit of God is present in each other, right? You gotta start to see people that way, man. Don't mishandle that sister. Don't mishandle, don't be gentle with her, man. She's, she's got the presence of God in her. Don't slander that dude. Don't, don't, don't talk about that dude like that behind his back. Careful, man, he's literally got the presence of God inside of him. Right? Don't be so mean to people. Don't judge people so much. Don't cut them down. When a person is talking to you, careful. Don't space out. Don't interrupt them. The presence of God is in that person. I mean, literally, if five of us in this room actually believed that we were temples of the living God, our city and our church would look different. Amen? So, May we all bless the Spirit this week when we step on our Legos. (laughs) Pray with me and then let's install some pastors. Heavenly Father, I just think that it's such good news that the Spirit indwells us and gives life to our mortal bodies and takes away our condemnation and makes us into living, breathing temples. And when I think about that, and when I think about your love for the temple in the Old Testament... I just think there's nobody else in the world I'd want to be and there's nothing I would want to be besides your temple. So thanks for making that a reality with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.